Take your copy of Scripture and go to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, now, this, this morning is going to be a little bit different than normal, because normally I would, I would read a pretty decent chunk of Scripture, and then we'd kind of go in and, and break it down. Um, the, the thing with Nehemiah chapter 3 is, um, well, it's long, and it's redundant. Okay, so, so we're gonna, we are going to read a snippet of it, but then I'm going to kind of talk through, and rather than walking through like a, a point and then look at these verses, and then a point and look at these verses, uh, we're going to kind of look at some themes in chapter 3, uh, just because chapter 3 is a chronicle of the workers as they set to rebuild uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. So really, it's going to read more like... Um, more like a, a contractor's log of, of his workers rather than what we would normally think of as scripture. And yet, it's right here in scripture. So that means we can't just like skip over it because God put it in here for a purpose. Uh, so we're going to see what, what that is this morning. So if you will, uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 3 on your device or in your scripture, in your copy of scripture. And we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And this is going to kind of just be a pattern for the rest of the chapter. And, and we'll, we'll see that as we go along. Starting in verse three, or chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed the doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and next to them Zachur, son of Imri, built. Verse 3, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Banna, made repairs. Besides the Tikoites, Beside them, the Tikoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. So this is how chapter 3 goes, okay? Now, if you're looking for some really cool names for children or grandchildren, let me, let me point you to Nehemiah chapter 3, okay? Because you, for, for one, it would provide a talking point, right? <laughs> Why did you name your son uh, Meshezebel? Well, it's, it's in Nehemiah chapter 3. I can't believe you're not familiar with that, with that name. Uh, so, <laughs> here is the... Let, let, me, let me provide you the pattern of Nehemiah chapter 3. There's going to be a name that I can't pronounce. And it's going to say that he worked on the wall next to such and such a gate. And what he does, what Nehemiah does, is starts at the north part of the city and he works counterclockwise throughout all the gates. So throughout Nehemiah chapter 3, he's going to walk all the way around the city of Jerusalem and talk about the different people who are working on the wall. Um, and that's the pattern. A name you can't pronounce worked on, the sheep, worked on the sheep gate. Next to him, another name you can't pronounce worked beside him. Okay? And here's what we see. The, the, first, the first thing I want us to consider this morning is that when it comes to rebuilding, whether in this case it's rebuilding the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem, or in our case, rebuilding a local church, 
The first thing we need to understand is that rebuilding requires gospel purpose. Requires gospel purpose. Now the purpose of the wall, the purpose of their work, we see back in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. Remember last week we looked at how Nehemiah didn't tell anybody what he was doing for a while. He went and inspected the city, and then he's ready to let everybody else in on what God's been stirring him to do. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. So he says, come, let's rebuild Let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And then in verse 18, he says, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And the people respond to him, say, let's start rebuilding. So in chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah issues this call, come, let's rebuild. And the people respond by saying, let's start rebuilding. And in chapter 3, they begin rebuilding. And here's what's amazing. What we're going to see, I'm going to give you a preview. What we're going to see is that in 52 days, they had rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. 52 days. You guys, the city of Alamogordo had our street torn up out here for six months. And Nehemiah and and the people of Jerusalem rebuilt the, the, the walls of the city in 52 days. I'm not trying to say anything about to our county commissioner or our city commissioner sitting in the building. I'm just saying. All right, this is the way, this is what the Bible says. <laughs> Why did they get to work? Because they understood their purpose. Now, in their case, the, the walls of the city were literally protection for the city. There, in, in, in the time when Nehemiah is writing, there is no Jerusalem police department to provide protection for its citizens. So they relied on the city's walls to protect them from invading forces, from those who would want to come in and do harm to the city. And so their their city is vulnerable to attack. And Nehemiah says, not only that, but it's a disgrace to our God because this is the holy city. If you think about the way people viewed Jerusalem in the Old Testament, this was the place where the temple was, which represented God's presence to his people. So literally, Jerusalem was the place where God dwells, and its walls and and the city lied in ruins. So Nehemiah says, listen, we need to rebuild the walls for our protection, yes, but also so that we will no longer be a disgrace. What does it say about how we view our God if we're willing to let our city lie in ruins? Because this is what the Bible says about Jerusalem, Psalm 87.2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, that's another word for Jerusalem, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. In the Old Testament, this was God's prized city among his prized nation. And it's been destroyed and it's, it's been disgraced, which the Jews understood as disgracing the name of God. So so let me ask you then, if that's their purpose, we want to rebuild so that uh, we will no longer be unprotected and so that we will no longer be a disgrace and and we will make a declaration about what we believe, uh, who we believe God is and what we believe he's called us to do by by the way our city is. How then do we apply that to a local church? If we're talking about rebuilding a church, what, what does that mean? 
Surely we're not talking about constructing a wall around the church. No, no, that's not it. And, and I think to, as I've said before, so, some preachers have taken Nehemiah as, as kind of a way to support some building program that they had in mind. And so here he would say, listen, you see how the, the people of Jerusalem were called to rebuild the walls of the church. Let's or rebuild the walls of the city. We're called to rebuild the walls of the church. I, I think that's probably taking that to a place that, that um, God would not say is a direct correlation to us. But if we look at this in a spiritual sense, see, their purpose was to rebuild the city's walls for their own protection, for the glory of God. In our day and age, as a New Testament church, when we speak of rebuilding the church, of course we are not speaking of the walls. Let, let, let me camp out here for just a second. If you view the church as a building your, your understanding of who God is and your understanding of, of what we're called to do is coming primarily out of the Old Testament, right? Now, I heard this as a kid. Well, we're going to the Lord's house. This is God's building. L listen, God has blessed us with a great facility. But these walls are not the church. This is the meeting place of the church. The church is the people. Because in, in the book of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, listen, a day is coming where I will pour out my spirit on all people, and I will dwell in them. So now, if, if the temple in the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God, the temple in the New Testament is you and me who have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. There is nothing sacred about our structures. All around the world, there are churches meeting in buildings very similar to ours. There'll be churches meeting in cathedrals that are very ornate, that have been standing for hundreds of years. And there'll be churches meeting underneath bridges and in closets. And none of them has a claim to be a true New Testament church. If they're worshiping the Lord our God, if they are reading, discussing, proclaiming scripture, if they celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper, we would say that is a New Testament church, regardless of what their structures mean. And so listen, here, here's, my, here's my plea, and this, this is the only thing I'm ever going to say about our buildings. Um, I don't know what the future of First Baptist Church holds, but if this structure becomes more sacred than what God is doing in and through us, we have missed the boat of what God's doing at First Baptist Church. And I have no idea. We might be here for another 50 years. And we might be here for another five months. I have no idea. But, but, but if your identity in being First Baptist Church is wrapped up in a physical location, we have missed the point. So, as followers of Christ, then what is our purpose? Jesus laid it out in Matthew 28, verses 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our purpose as a New Testament church, to make disciples. If we're not making disciples, we're not a church. It might be a gathering place, might be a meeting place. If we're not making disciples, we're not a church. We'll get on, we'll get on to that here in just a second.
So that's the first thing. It requires a gospel purpose. It requires understanding what God has called us to and a commitment to that, to, to that purpose. Secondly, uh, rebuilding requires gospel partnerships. So as I said, throughout chapter 3, you're going to see this pattern. Uh, this guy whose name I can't pronounce, and you probably can't either, began rebuilding near a gate, the shepherd gate, uh, the sheep gate, the dung gate, which I don't think anyone was like signing up to, yes, I'll go work on the dung gate. Um, okay. And next to him, somebody else whose name I can't pronounce built. But here's the crazy thing. What I think is really the glorious thing. Throughout chapter 3, you see several different kinds of professions. And so I went through, um, in one of my commentaries that I was reading on this passage, he pointed out all the, different, um, all the different occupations that are listed here. And so I went through with a red mark or with a red pen, and I underlined them all in chapter 3 in my Bible. And so here's what we see. Ch- uh, chapter 3, verse 1. We're told about Eliashib and his fellow priests who began rebuilding the Sheep Gate. Then in verse 8, we're told about Uziel, the son of Harhiah, who was a goldsmith. Next to them, Hananiah, the son of the perfumer. Uh, son of the perfumer could, could simply mean um, that that was his trade. In other words, saying son of, uh, it's not necessarily saying his parents were were perfumers, it's a way of saying that it was his occupation. That's what he, uh, that's what he became, a son of the perfumers. Uh, so, so he was a perfumer. Um, on down in verse 12, we're told about Halohesh, who was a ruler of the half district of Jerusalem. So, so listen here. We see priests. We see goldsmiths, perfumers, rulers of districts. Later on, it's going to talk about temple servants. People from all different walks of life partnering together to fulfill God's purpose, partnering together to rebuild their city. Sounds kind of like something that Paul says later on in the, in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, and then jumping down to 11, Paul says this. Now, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. Each of these people would have had different gifts, yes? A goldsmith is generally not going to have the same gifts as a perfumer. But the same Lord. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. But one in the same spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person how he wills. So what we see here happening in Nehemiah chapter 3 is really a picture of what the local church will become. Where you have people from all different professions, all different walks of life. God says you have different roles, but you're all a part of one body, united through one spirit, in Christ, working together for the glory of God. And so, so listen, let me say this as, as a pastor. God's plan was never for one person, i.e. a paid professional pastor to do all the work. Matter of fact, my job description in Ephesians 4.11 um, says, 11 and 12 says, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now just imagine what would have happened had Nehemiah come strolling into, into Jerusalem on his donkey and he says, uh, listen guys, God has called us to rebuild the wall. 
And the people of Jerusalem looked at him and said, All right, praise the Lord. Get on it. You, get on it. Nehemiah, we're going to pay you. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to sit back and, and some, of us are gonna, some of us will be on board and some of us will uh, criticize every single nail you drive. All right? Um, but, but you do it. That's why we pay you the big bucks, Mr. Nehemiah. You, you get right on it. Would not have taken 52 days to repair the wall. But instead, Nehemiah understood this principle that everyone in the city had a part to play. This is what Paul later says to those gathered in the New Testament. Listen, it's not about one guy. It's not about the, the guy who stands up front and saying, that's our minister. That, that's the one who's supposed to meet all of our needs. Maybe you've heard this. Um, some, some, some folks did research about, from different churches about what an ideal pastor looks like. He's 32 years old. He's been in the ministry for 40 years. He works 80 hours a week. And yet he still has a perfect family. <laughs> Balances all his hobbies and, and, his, uh, and his pastoral uh, obligations. And he's still in the pulpit every single Sunday delivering a knockout message. It's not the idea in Scripture. The, the idea in Scripture is that I, while, while yes, having some responsibilities, will equip, will disciple and equip you to carry out the ministry that God has given to you. Because here's the thing, around this room and, and, and among the folks who call themselves First Baptist Church of Alamogordo, there are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of abilities that I don't possess. Which means that God has called you to a very specific ministry that I couldn't do because I don't have your gifting and I don't have your calling. That, that's why I said last week, if, if God ever lays something on your heart that would be a great ministry for First Baptist Church of Alamogordo to look into and you come to me and, said, and say, Pastor, we, we should be doing this, my response is going to be, I agree, that sounds great, get on it. I don't have room to add stuff to my job description. If God's called you to it, if God's laid it on your heart, it could just be that he's calling you to kickstart it. I, I like this. I found, found this quote. I don't, I don't believe I put it up there, but um, just listen to this. For, from a guy named John Butler who, just, who wrote a commentary on Nehemiah. He says this, It takes more people than we think to do God's work. There is no place for the non-worker in God's program takes more people than we think to do God's work. There is no place for the non-worker in God's program. Okay? There is no place for the two old guys in the Muppets. We even got a balcony, okay? There's no room for you to just sit up there and criticize everything that happens without lifting a finger. Now, now here's what's interesting. If you notice this, there are some men in Jerusalem who tried to do just that. Verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. And we see the guys that are kind of like the two old guys in the Muppets. In Sanballat and Tobiah, who we were introduced to last week, who we will see again next week. 
as they just, and, and that's really the, I, the, the picture that I get. They just kind of kick back and they're ridiculing everything that's going on and probably making themselves laugh. So, so here's, here's why I say that. If you want a church where you can just show up and be entertained, this is probably not the church for you. And I say that without apology. If you want to show up and be entertained, this is not the place for you. Our call as followers of Christ is not to sit in a pew and be delighted. It's to be involved as disciples. However, if you want to show up you want to get involved in seeing people come to faith in Christ and come and, and grow in Him, then this is the church for you. It's a long way ahead, long road to go. The local church is not about making you comfortable. It's about the people of God working together to see the kingdom of God advance, which will at times be very uncomfortable. So, so then the question is then, why do we continue to meet every week? Like if it's not about us and it's not about our comfort and it's not for us to be entertained, then why do we continue to gather? Because we've been commanded in Scripture. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our worship meetings as, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, now I, I've heard some pastors take this verse and apply it to why we need to do more things at the church. Uh, why we need to meet at the church more nights of the week. I, I think that misses the point. The point is we need to encourage each other more, not that we need to be sitting in this room more. The point of our worship meetings is much like, our worship gatherings is much like a pep rally. Pep rally on Holy Spirit steroids, if you will. We gather together to worship what God has, to, to worship God for who he is and what he has done in us and through us. To hear about what he's doing in our lives that we might be encouraged to go out. The point of the church gathered is that we might be strengthened for those days when we are the church scattered, i.e. Monday through Saturday. So one, one of the things that, that I'm going to start working in more is testimony time. It's not something I've done. It's not something that I think uh, churches are, have been good at recently. But, but hearing what God's doing in and through us, how he's working in us, and in some cases how he's at work breaking addictions, breaking sin, setting us free, in order that we might encourage one another in our walk. And so uh, as we begin year two together next Sunday, that's something that I'm, I'm committing to making more, uh, more a part of our worship gatherings is, is testimonies, hearing t somebody taking five minutes and sharing what God has done with them. Now, maybe like just the idea, like even hearing that made you anxious with, with going, oh man, he's going to ask me to get up and speak. No, 
you don't have to. But maybe God's done something really amazing in your life and you'd like to share that. If so, let me know. I, I would love to start incorporating some of our stories into our worship gatherings. Here's the last thing. Rebuilding leads to gospel preservation. Not self-preservation. In fact, oftentimes, gospel preservation, giving our, uh, making sure that we are people who want to see the kingdom of God advance is the opposite of self-preservation. That's why men and women will leave the comfort of their homes here in the United States and go to places where it is illegal for them to be there as, not just as missionaries, it's illegal for them to be there as followers of Christ. Yet God has put such a burning in their heart that they say, I will turn my back on my comforts so that we might see the kingdom of God advance in our day, laying down my own life in the process if necessary. Look with me at at verse 28, chapter 3, verse 28. It says, each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. So so, so get this, again, remember, the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were, provided the protection for the city. And what we see is each person sets to work on the wall in front of their house. We're not told about people who travel to the other side of the city to start doing work, but everybody starts repairing right at home. They start repairing so that their families might be protected. They were working to preserve their homes. So so what does this look like for a New Testament church? Because that sounds kind of like self-preservation. And if you were talking about, I dare say if we were talking about uh, rebuilding a wall of protection around Alamogordo, the place you would be most concerned with would be the part closest to your house. So, so what does that preservation look like? So, so we've said that for, for the believer, that doesn't necessarily mean self-preservation. It means gospel preservation. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, as he, uh, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? And it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Now, let me get you out of your 21st century way of thinking, because you probably think salt as the little shaker on the table um, to add some flavor to, to something that's a little bland, right? So, so ra- rather than insulting your wife, men, and saying, um, mm, it was a good shot, good try, you're going to say, can I have some salt, please? <laughs> in in, in Jesus' day, in the, in the first century, Salt was not used primarily as flavoring. It was used for preservation. Before the days of refrigeration, they used salt. That's how they would preserve meat. So what's Jesus saying here? We need some believers to spice up the world. No, he's saying as believers, we have the responsibility of preserving the world around us. Taking that which is spoiled and restoring it. Those who are affected by sin and death and seeing them turned to life in Christ Jesus and in so doing, preserving the world around us. 
So then where do we start? Okay, so, so we are to be people who preserve the world. And the way we do that is by seeing men, women, children come to faith in Christ. Where do we start? Well, in Nehemiah, the folks started working on the wall right near their house. So I would say this. The answer to that is really simple. You start, first of all, in your home with, with the folks that God has given that are closest to you. Spouse, children, parents, nieces, nephews. Start, start in your house and then go to your neighborhood. In fact, this is kind of what Jesus said when he gives... Uh, Luke's version of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, starting at home, starting right where you are. In Judea, you're going to go to some folks that are kind of like you. In Samaria, you're going to go to folks that you don't even like and they don't like you. And from there to the ends of the earth. And you know what's wild? This is in Acts 1.8. The, the book of Acts plays this out. This verse is an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. All the believers are gathered together in Jerusalem. Jesus just ascended into heaven. They all kind of looking at each other like, what now? And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And almost immediately persecution breaks out. And the Bible says they scatter. And do you know where they scatter to? Well, they scatter to Judea. Then they scatter to Samaria, running for their life and preaching the gospel as they go along, and eventually to the ends of the earth, even here in Alamogordo 2,000 years later. Start at home. As I've said before, you know, if you're, if you're praying, Lord, send somebody to preach the gospel to my neighborhood, I'm, I'm crazy enough to think that God's going to look back at you and say, I did. Well, where? They're in your house. <laughs> you if you're in your neighborhood and you know somebody in your neighborhood who doesn't know Christ it could just be that he's placed you there for for such a time as this this is also why I believe uh, one of the first requirements for pastors and for deacons that Paul gives in first Timothy 3 is that they must start in their house so, so look here both um, one who manages his own house competently uh, talking about pastors and elders having his children under control with all dignity if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? For deacons, deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their households and their own households competently. I kind of like the way that says it, because it, it doesn't say perfectly, right? But competently, you at least kind of know what you're doing most of the time. So as we wrap up here, um, Nehemiah called his people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I believe our call is to rebuild a New Testament church. Not a building, but a people. And now let me say this. It dawned on me this morning. This is the last Sunday of my first year as pastor at First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. Next Sunday starts year two which blows my mind that, that we've been here a year. Oh, well. So, so, so on one hand, thank you for allowing us to be here for a year. But, but also, this, this occurred to me this morning. What a message as we take a step into the next year. 
Come, let's rebuild. 1 Corinthians 3.9. As I said, we're not building a building. We are concerned with building a people. 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says, For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. As we work to shore up the temple of God, it's not about fixing a structure. It's not about building a new structure. It's about building people, men, women, and children who are followers of Christ. And then Peter, 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, gives us these this encouragement. This is what I'm closing with. It says, Coming to him, a living stone, he was rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. Listen to this. You yourselves, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Come, let's rebuild the house of God gathered at First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this great privilege to shepherd and guide your people gathered here. I'm humbled by the task and excited for the opportunities. Father, as we close the the chapter on this first year, we can look at so many... um, Strides that we've made, so many successes, so many new faces, and yet I believe that's just the beginning of what you're doing here at First Baptist Church of Alamogordo as we seek to rebuild. Not so that we can make a name for ourselves, not so that I can make a name for myself, but so we can step back and say, look at what God has done among a people who are surrendered to him and following where he leads. God, we don't know what the next year or two or 10 or 20 hold for us. We only trust that you will lead us and that we will follow. Help us to be people committed to gospel purposes to seeing disciples made here in Alamogordo stretching around the world. There would be people committed to partnering together from all different walks of life, all different racial and socioeconomic professional backgrounds to see the gospel advance. And that we would be people who want to see the gospel preserved and proclaimed beginning in our homes, stretching to our neighborhoods, stretching to this community, our state, our nation, and our world. God, we believe this is the task to which you've called us. We don't know how to do it. We need your help. So as we overhear conversations that that are begging to have a gospel seed planted in them, would you give us the words and the courage to to turn folks' attention towards you? 
Thank you, most of all, for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the reason we gather together as people with different gifts, but the same spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.